Welcome to our podcast, Wayfaring Saints, where faith comes alive and the journey never ends. We're your hosts, Carson and Nathan, and we want you to join us on a transformative journey of faith and purpose as we seek to rekindle the flame of authentic Christianity, restore biblical literacy, and pursue the deep, enduring joy of knowing and following Jesus. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy today's episode of Wayfaring Saints. All right, welcome back to another episode. Today we are taking a break from our normal series to do a sort of Christmas special. We're going to be discussing what Christmas is all about, the the advent of Christ. For those of you who don't know, advent means coming or arrival. So we're talking about the arrival of Jesus Christ, the long-awaited Messiah. And we often hear about the God who came, Emmanuel, God with us. But that's only half the picture. See, Jesus, he didn't just come from nowhere. He came from somewhere. And so the, and so the story begins not with the God who came, but with the God who left. And I want to begin by reading some of the prologue from John's gospel. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then it goes on to say, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And there's a reason I wanted to start here rather than the typical passages about the birth of Jesus. And that's because, like I said earlier, the story doesn't begin with baby Jesus in a manger. And it doesn't begin with Mary and the angel either. No, if we want to truly understand just how incredible the Advent story is, we must go back to the true beginning of the story, Eternity Past. Bill Crowder, author and theologian, writes in his book, Before Christmas, I have felt for years that when we enter the Christmas story, we enter it too late. We consider Jesus' coming, but we forget that he had to leave where he was to come to where we are. We are so thrilled with the baby in the manger that we don't pause to remember who that baby is. We forget that the eternal Son of God left the Father's presence, which he had known and enjoyed since before time began, in order to become, amazingly, that baby in the manger. This should take our breath away. It should cause us to ponder the glory he left and to contemplate the darkness into which he came. Think of the perfect relationship he left behind to embrace the brokenness that our rebellion had inflicted upon his creation. And I wanted to start with John because his prologue is one of the clearest, most profound statements on the eternality of Jesus, where he refers to Jesus as the eternal preexistent word who has existed with God from eternity past and at the same time is God. Also, John says that the word was the agent of all creation, that everything was created through him, which means that he himself could not have been created. No, being God, Jesus is the I am, the Alpha and Omega, who was, who is, and is to come. And I'll get into the meaning of John calling Jesus the word later. But right now I want to look at Philippians 2, 5 through 7. It says, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The Greek word Paul uses for form is morphe, and it doesn't mean what we typically think when we hear the word form. The Greek word is more of a philosophical term, referring to the essential nature or inner essence of something. It also refers to the outward expression of that inner essence. 
Quoting from Crowder again, he writes, By saying that in eternity past, Christ existed in the form of God, Paul is expressing in the strongest possible terms the complete and absolute deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not like God. He is God. He does not picture deity. He possesses deity. So Jesus is fully God. But notice the crazy contrast in the passage here. Jesus being in the form of God and Jesus taking the form of a servant. To quote from a commentary, the contrast between these two descriptions of Christ should astonish us. The form of God means the honor, power, and glory or splendid beauty that God the Father has. This is the outward expression of the inner essence, the divine essence. In other words, the most wonderful honor, absolute power, and the greatest glory, all of these things Christ had in heaven. And yet Paul says that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, there's a much longer discussion here, but this does not mean that Jesus lost his divinity by coming to earth as a man. No, he never ceased to be God. Rather, he became fully man in addition to being fully God. We refer to this as the hypostatic union, and it is one of the essential doctrines of Christ. Fully God, fully man. What Paul is saying is that Jesus, all of these things that he had in heaven, the outward expressions of his divine essence, the honor, the power, the glory, his divine rights and privileges as God the Son, the creator of all things, he set all of that aside when he came to earth, and instead he came in the form of a servant. Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To quote another commentary, a servant receives no honor whatsoever. In this world, kings and great rulers have a kind of glory, but servants have none. However, that was the life that Christ chose on earth. He chose to be unimportant, to give up unimaginably wonderful things so that he could help us. Ultimately, he would even choose to die so that God could forgive us. When God comes into our world, The greatness of his glory usually astonishes and frightens people. However, when Christ was born in Bethlehem, few people even realized it. To most, this great and wonderful event seemed no different from the birth of any other child. However, the reality was that Christ, God the Son, had entered our world. The song King of Kings says, From a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the dirt. This is the absurdity of the incarnation, that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, would set aside all of his honor, power, and glory, leaving his place of eternal and perfect fellowship with the Father and the Spirit to be born as a man and take on the form of a humble servant, to step into the brokenness and darkness that humanity had afflicted upon his creation, and all for the ultimate purpose of giving his life as a ransom to accomplish our redemption. He gave up his throne for a manger and a cross a baby born to die, the son of God born to die. To quote from a song, the very hands that shaped the world hung up to bleed. I don't think our minds will ever be able to fully comprehend just how absurd that is. But this is why the advent of Christ is such good news. It's everything that we talked about in our episode on redemption. It's God stepping into creation to save his people who are hopelessly lost and separated from him. And there's this idea that's becoming increasingly popular, and that's all roads lead to heaven. In other words, every every religion, every path is true and viable and ultimately leads to God. And there's this mountain metaphor where it is said that each climbs the mountain in their own way, their own tradition. And when they get to the top, they see that all other religions have gotten there too. But here is one key difference that sets Christianity apart. You see, in every religion, there is a sense in which you must climb that mountain to get God. The methodologies and traditions may differ, but they all involve some form of difficult, laborious climb. You must ascend higher and higher still until at last you reach the top and lay hold of God. 
In the Christian story, however, it is God himself who climbs down the mountain to get his people and bring them back with him. And this is the great tragedy that many today are trying to climb the mountain, laboring on step after step, striving and struggling, thinking just over the next hill I shall at last reach the top and lay hold of God, only to find the mountain goes higher and higher still. But the Christian story, it says, you cannot climb that mountain. We fell from its peaks and to climb back up is simply impossible. It is too high, too difficult. None of us can make it. But God, the unspeakable riches in depths of his love and mercy, he descended that mountain. Jesus left his heavenly dwelling, his place of unspeakable joy, glory, love, and fellowship within the Godhead. He left it all behind to come for us. And he grabbed hold of us and he brought us back up that mountain to be with him, that we might share in that unspeakable joy in perfect fellowship of the Father and the Son through the Spirit, that we might know and enjoy him for all eternity. So I'll conclude with this quote from a C.S. Lewis book, Miracles. He said, In the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. Carson talked about the God who left, and I want to talk a little bit about the God who visited us. And so if we're looking in Luke, it says this in Luke chapter 1, talking about Zechariah's prophecy. He had just seen the fulfillment of God's promise to him through John the Baptist. And we're looking at a scene where he's celebrating. He's filled with the Holy Spirit and he's beginning to prophesy like they did in the Old Testament. And so, it's a a parallel of Old Testament prophecy where Zechariah is filled with the Spirit and he begins to profess glories of God and what God has begun to do and what he's doing. And so, we see here, it says in verse 67, and his father Zechariah, talking about John's father, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he visited and accomplished redemption for his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant. Carson talked about God leaving behind heaven and coming to earth and coming into human form. And Zacharias says this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he visited and accomplish redemption for his people. So, God leaves heaven, comes to earth, but he comes with a purpose. It says he visited. When you think of a visitation, it's not a coming to stay indefinitely. He's not surrendering his godness. Jesus was fully God, fully man, and he doesn't abandon his godhoodness. He doesn't forever reside here on earth and lose his divinity, but he visits. He makes a pit stop, and he visits us for a purpose. If we look at the Greek word, it'll give us the reason for which Christ visited us, for why God visited humanity. And the Greek word is episkepsado, which is the word that we use for episcopal or bishop. And it's interesting to look at this passage and to to read it in that way. It says, for he bishoped and accomplished redemption for his people. So, is Jesus a bishop? Does that mean that he is a individual church leader? 
No, it means that in bishop terms, it means that he visited his people for a house call to care for them, to tend to them in the way that a bishop of a church would visit his people, his flock, and tend for the needs, care for the sheep, check in on them. And so when God himself decided to leave heaven to come to earth in the the flesh of humanity, in our likeness, to come as us and care for us. There's a big sign that it says he cares for us. And it's this idea that Christ knows and understands all the things that we go through in life. The reason for him bishoping us or coming to visit us, it was to show us that he knew every experience that we've ever experienced. He's faced every temptation. We see it in later in the Gospels where Jesus is tempted by Satan, where he's tempted with the same things we're tempted with, hunger, ambition, a desire to be his own God, to be his own ruler. And we see that he passed them by living out scripture, by living in a way that we can follow. Granted, it's not easy, but he gives us the perfect example by visiting us and living a life in a way that demonstrates how we should live. And the cool thing about this, the most beautiful picture, is that he doesn't come in the way of visiting all the other prophets. He doesn't come in a mighty cloud or a storm in power in this awesome display, but he comes in the form of a baby. This meekness, this mildness, it's a picture that we could never even comprehend a God who created the whole universe would show up in. There's a scene in Ezekiel where he he goes into this cleft of a rock and he's staring out from a, from a mountain and God it says in the Bible that a whole storm passed by and an earthquake and thunder and lightning, but God was not in any of those things. And then he hears the soft whisper of a voice and he says that God was there and it wasn't in that authoritative, in that power, in that massive display, but it was in the softness and the meekness. And it gives us a perfect glimpse at who our God is and who Jesus is. And the whole advent and the wonderfulness of God visiting us is it helps us to know that we have a God who knows what we go through. It helps us to know that we have a God who cares for us, who sees us, who loves us. Because if I was God, why would I want to leave the gloriousness of heaven, the, the power, the radiance, the kingship and the authority of heaven only to come down and to be born in a helpless state where I can't take care of myself, I can't feed myself, I can't rely on myself. But the beauty of Advent is that God decided to do that so that you, so that I, so that Carson could have salvation, we could have freedom so that we could live life as wayfaring saints. And the most awesome thing, and I hope I don't sound too heretical, is that Jesus was the first wayfaring saint, and we all get to partner with him by being followers of Jesus, by living the life that he lived when he bishoped us, when he came and visited us to show us how to live life. And the cool thing about Advent is every year we get to celebrate exclusively 
the fact that Jesus came and returned to bishop us. And when we're looking at Zechariah's prophecy, we see that it talks about this idea of Christ coming in the house of David. And it brings all these images in our heads. Well, David is, you know, this shepherd boy from the Old Testament. He becomes king. But what does that have to do with Jesus today? Well, in the Jewish mind, when they were thinking about Jesus coming and they were looking for the Messiah, they didn't see Jesus as God. Why? Why do we see it and we say, yeah, that has to be God. Look at all the prophecies he fulfilled. Well, for them in their mind, why would God visit them in human form? In their mind, the Messiah was going to be this kingly character who was going to rise up in this mighty way conquer armies, take over land, and become this king of a mighty kingdom who is going to free them from oppression, free them from the hands of the Romans, why would he come in the form of a baby and God coming down into humanity? In their thought, it would be a man who rose up in army and traveled in front of them on a horse and defeated the Romans. But we get this idea from looking at Isaiah, and at the end of chapter 8, it says this, and the title I'm reading from the NET Bible, the title is, Darkness Turns to Light as an Ideal King Arrives. And this is the prophecy that they would look back at, and they would picture this is what the Messiah looked like. So when the advent would happen, the advent of the Messiah, and granted, they wouldn't be using these terms because these are English terms, but the advent of the Messiah would look like this. And this is what Isaiah says. They will say to you, seek oracles at the pits used to conjure up underworld spirits from the magicians who chirp and mutter incantations. Should people not seek oracles from their gods by asking the dead about the destiny of the living? Then you must recall the Lord's instructions and the prophetic testimony of what would happen. Certainly they say such things because their minds are spiritually darkened. They will pass through the land, destitute and starving. Their hunger will make them angry, and they will curse their king and their god. As they look upward, when one looks out over the land, he sees distress and dark gloom, and anxiety and darkness and people forced from the land. The gloom will be dispelled for those who were anxious. And then it says this, In earlier times he humiliated the land of Zebulun, and in the land of Naphtali, But now he brings honor to the way of the sea, to the region beyond the Jordan, and Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness see a bright light. Light shines on those who live in a land of deep darkness. You have enlarged the nation, and you give them great joy. They rejoice in your presence as harvesters rejoice and as warriors celebrate when they divide up the plunder. For their oppressive yoke And the club that strikes their shoulders, the cudgel of the oppressor uses on them. You have scattered, as in the day of Midian's defeat. In every boot that marches and shakes the earth, and every garment dragged through blood is used as fuel for the fire. For a child has been born to us. A son has been given to us. He shoulders responsibility and is called extraordinary strategist, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, and his dominion will be vast and he will bring immeasurable 
prosperity. He will rule on David's throne and over David's kingdom, establishing it and strengthening it by promoting justice and fairness. From this time forward and evermore, the Lord's intense devotion to his people will accomplish this. And so when we're looking at this section of scripture, we're getting this idea of this kingly character who is coming in. Yes, he was a baby at some point because he had to have been born a human. But in their mind, there is this kingly character who is going to be this extraordinary strategist. And yes, we see wonderful counselor in our Bibles, but when we're looking at the context and the original Hebrew, it connotates this military counselor which is this strategist who plans and conquers and who can devise strategies to take things over. And so they would picture that this king who would come, who would advent to them, would be this military ruler who would free them from the oppression of Rome. And they got something completely different. And praise be to God because we get to have Jesus born as a baby who came to us, who visited us. And he bishops us. He didn't just bishop us then, but he continues to bishop us. And that's the reason why we celebrate Advent year after year, is because we get to celebrate that Jesus is alive today, that he's alive and we get to have relationship with him. We get to live life with him. We get to change our lives because of what he has done here. And so Advent is an everyday promise an everyday reminder that we get to celebrate the God who bishoped us. Yeah, and one of the awesome things about Jesus coming to bishop us is that he truly and fully revealed God to us. So going back to John's prologue, he calls Jesus the word. When John calls Jesus the word, the Greek word is logos, which was a common term in both Jewish thought and Greek philosophy. It would have had profound implications for readers on both sides. And to quickly summarize the thinking around this idea of the word, here's a quote from Got Questions. It says, in the Old Testament, the word of God is often personified as an instrument for the execution of God's will. So for his Jewish readers, by introducing Jesus as the word, John is in a sense pointing them back to the Old Testament where the logos or word of God is associated with the personification of God's revelation. And in Greek philosophy, the term logos was used to describe the intermediate agency by which God created material things and communicated with them. In the Greek worldview, the logos was thought of as a bridge between the transcendent God and the material universe. Therefore, for his Greek readers, the use of the term logos would have likely brought forth the idea of a mediating principle between God and the world. So by referring to Jesus as the word, John is expressing this idea that Jesus is the ultimate communication and self-revelation of God. The word is the divine expression embodying the thoughts, purposes, and communication of God to humanity. The NIV says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. This is another amazing aspect of the advent of Christ and Jesus coming to bishop us. It is the fullest and deepest revelation of God to humanity. It is God revealing himself, not just through the word lowercase, meaning scripture, but through the word, uppercase, the son of God in the flesh. Hebrews 1.3 says, he, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians 1.15 says that he is the image of the invisible God. 
Jesus says in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You see, John says no one has ever seen God, but Jesus, he has made him known. Jesus Christ is the ultimate revealer. And this is why Christology, the study of Christ, is so important. Because to know Christ is to know God. To know and understand the heart of Christ is to know and understand the heart of God because he is God. You can't truly know someone unless they reveal themselves to you, right? Unless they tell you or they show you. Well, through his advent, Jesus fully makes God known to his creation. And we have all of scripture, which is breathed out by God, meaning they are his words in a sense. It is his self-revelation, but all of it points to and ultimately finds its fullest expression in the person and work of Christ. And I simply don't have enough time to talk about all the ways Christ reveals the Father and his person and work, his love, mercy, grace, wrath, justice. I mean, Christology is a lifelong pursuit, but I want to focus in quickly on one of the most important things that is put on display in the advent of Christ, and that is the love of God. 1 John 3.1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. How absurd that we should be called children of God, not because of anything we've done, not because we deserve it, but because of the great love with which he loved us. First John 4, 9 through 10 perfectly summarizes this great love revealed in and through Christ. It says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We truly and fully see the love of God in the advent of Christ, what he was willing to leave behind, what he was willing to become, to endure, to do for our sake. It's unfathomable. I read in a little devotional called The Eternal King Arrives. It says, Though we are born in a darkness that comprises the depths of our souls, God sent Jesus to burst through the blackness with a light that is bright enough to illuminate the furthest reaches of the universe. Jesus didn't merely lay out the blueprints of God's redemption. He also included God's motivation, love. This is the thrill of hope that reemerges in our hearts every year at Advent as we imagine the unfathomable volume of God's love for us and the person and work of Jesus Christ. Again, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. See, see that great love, that indescribable love. Well, how do we see this in the person and work of Christ as we celebrate this Advent season? Look to Christ. Ponder the glory he left. Contemplate the darkness into which he came for our sake to save us, to redeem us, to bishop us. And as you ponder these things, as you come to understand them more and more, you can't help but just be left in indescribable awe and wonder. So as we go throughout this Advent season, may our reflecting and our pondering lead us to beholding and adoring the King of Kings who left his throne of endless glory for a manger and a cross.
Thank you for joining us on this episode of Wayfaring Saints. Your support means the world to us. If you enjoyed it, please consider following, leaving a review, and sharing the podcast so that we can grow our community of Wayfaring Saints together. Join us next week as we continue to discuss what it means to follow Jesus as citizens of heaven living on earth.